0: Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. I'm Osman Mughal and I'm delighted to be speaking with Keith Kibarango today. Keith is head of Africa Philanthropy at Save the Children UK and has more than 20 years of social impact and fundraising experience in the UK, in Europe, and internationally. He's a global philanthropy expert who has raised in excess of £30 million revolutionising African philanthropy, raising more than 15 million in just 24 months at Save the Children UK. In his spare time, Keith has set up Volunteer Visits, a social enterprise that provides volunteers an opportunity to work with disadvantaged communities in Uganda. In today's conversation, we discuss a range of topics, including what are the similarities and differences UK-based philanthropy and African philanthropy, tips on how to successfully set up a philanthropy programme, the opportunities and challenges presented by COVID-19, and what can organisations do to significantly improve equity, diversity and inclusion in our sector, which has rightly come into question over the past 12 months in particular. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Keith Kibirango, Head of Africa Philanthropy at Save the Children UK. Welcome to the podcast, Keith.
1: Thank you so much, Usman, and thank you very much for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm so delighted that you're able to join us today. Keith and I first met earlier this year and we were on a joint webinar and we did a webinar on how organizations can work with uh, major donors to leverage um, their potential. And I knew that once I spoke um, to Keith and once he shared his expertise with us, that he would be a fantastic person to have on the podcast. So thank you very much for joining. Before we discuss the changing world of philanthropy, particularly in light of COVID-19, which we will get to later on in the podcast, could you share a little bit with us about your background and what attracted you to the non-for-profit sector?
1: Oh oh my God, this is an interesting question. Um, I got into the not-for-profit sector by accident honestly. Uh, I am a lawyer by profession. I was born and raised in Uganda and my first job really was to work in a law firm and uh, I started uh, you know as one does as a lawyer. I went I started representing clients. I absolutely hated it. I was looking for another outlet something that I would have done that brought me more fulfillment I then joined what is called the Uganda Women Lawyers Association. I was actually the first male lawyer that they had. And what I did is that I represented um, uh, widows and orphans and provided them with free legal education. And really, that was my you know, unsuspecting dive into the not-for-profit world. And how I then started to move closer towards the fundraising world is because we did not charge the widows and orphans to to represent them in court, we had to look around for funding. And because we did not have um, these fundraisers, the lawyers were also fundraising. So by default, for me to be able to do my job, I had to fundraise as well. So I just did that for a number of years and increasingly I ended up doing less representing and more fundraising and it got to a point whereby I was doing 100% fundraising and not representing people at all in court and I loved it loved it loved it loved it so I got caught by the fundraising bag then and I have never looked back so that for me it was really an accident I would say.
0: That's amazing to hear Keith and it seems like that's a common story with all fundraisers. We don't tend to see this as a career path, perhaps very early on in our career, but we seem to, fundraising seems to find us, I think. That's a common thread. I've spoken to quite a lot of fundraisers across the sector and it's their passion for doing good that attracts them to fundraising and they end up in this space. Do you feel that your experiences as a lawyer and working with widows and orphans how do you think that's prepared you for your current role at Save the Children? Um,
1: I mean oh my god it's 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 there's a lot of commonality naturally. At Save the Children we do I mean we don't only support widows and orphans but you know there's a large percentage of widows and orphans that we would actually be reaching to by default that we reach the disadvantaged and so I think my background in being able to understand to appreciate day to day to be addressing and working with the challenges of you know children and widows prepared me for the role that i'm doing today so i still refer to those experiences i still share those stories i am able to provide an authentic experience to a donor because for some of the things that i am actually fundraising for i've w- witnessed firsthand and i can tell stories from uganda from any parts of africa which then help to bring the case for support to life and so for me i i totally appreciate i wouldn't change it for the world the experiences that i had growing up actually uh, but also when i started to work that it really helps me do what I do now, especially being that I focus on fundraising for um, from Africans.
0: Yeah, I really like that point, Keith, around authenticity. It's important as a fundraiser that you understand the people that you are trying to support and those that you're trying to do fundraising on behalf of. And it really comes across to the major donor that you're talking to as well. They can feed off that energy and understand exactly what you're talking about when you have those experiences at hand and you have those personal case studies as well
1: yeah absolutely absolutely um and and you know donors can tell they can actually tell if you know or you have visited a program i mean we all don't have to be from the countries we fundraise for but like i have found out visiting a program visiting the beneficiaries does make a huge, huge difference. So I hope that my fellow fundraisers out there who are fundraising for very many causes get the chance to do that, you know, bearing in mind that as I'm saying this obviously COVID doesn't allow us to do that, but hopefully that someday we'll be able to do that soon.
0: Absolutely. Let's hope it's soon as well, with this current (laughs) lockdown. We know that COVID-19 has had a tremendous impact on the world of philanthropy, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I wanted for you to share some of the similarities and differences between UK-based philanthropy and African philanthropy. In our webinar that we held earlier this year, you mentioned a significant difference. And one one of those differences was the impact of COVID-19 and you made the point that African philanthropy has flourished in COVID-19 with philanthropists giving up millions and millions of pounds and while we've seen incredible work done by philanthropists in the UK, it's not up to the same scale. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity as somebody who works for a UK organisation, how that differs from the African perspective and the UK perspective.
1: Um... And I hope I'm not wrong when I say this, but the UK fundraising market is a mature market. We, this is one of the oldest fundraising markets, and we have got a wide breadth of, 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 of ways in which we raise money. And when it comes to major donor fundraising, when it comes to philanthropy, we've been doing it for, for a long, long time. I mean, you can see you know, hospices that have been around for hundreds of years. So in terms of the growth of the market, it has grown and has gotten to a point whereby it can't grow any faster and it is you know, a healthy growth. Um, when it comes to Africa, the, fundraising, the the philanthropy is different. In Africa, I, I must say that every African is philanthropic. Mm. It's just that philanthropy is done differently. I pay fees to, to relatives. I help out to send money back home in terms of people who need food. And when you go to back home to our villages, when you go back home to our clans and families, everyone gives because that's what it's done. If you don't give, you are literally considered the most bizarre person. However, when it comes to giving large sums of money to people outside your immediate family or community, that is an area that is yet to grow the way we we see it here in Europe. However, when, when, when COVID hit, we saw how many wealthy Africans or significant number of wealthy Africans, especially from the bigger economies, gave quite significant amounts of money and they gave these monies beyond their community and beyond the family that they would normally have been giving. So that has been the really big, big change. When you look at the amount of money that has been given by philanthropists in Nigeria, in Kenya, in South Africa, in Ethiopia, it has really gone way, way, way beyond what people thought was capable of being given on the continent. And it has been a demonstration of actually, there is the potential to give on the African continent. It's us as fundraisers to find ways of exciting, of, of, of sharing visions, of, of being able to unlock that potential. So that is the difference that I saw. Both the UK and Africa, they both gave. It's just that the growth of the African market was just unimaginable.
0: And on the back of that, Keith, what excites you most working across the African philanthropy sector for a number of years now? as somebody who has worked with major donors, has really invested their time in this space, what do you think is most exciting that you feel that fundraisers that are working in the African market really need to pay attention to?
1: I think what is exciting is that they, first of all, honestly, Usman, there have been people who, even before I set up this programme, who came to me and they're like, Africans don't give. You know, they, they they don't give. We've never seen any money coming out of the continent. Africans are not philanthropic, they don't give. What is super exciting for me, no one can say that anymore. Okay. The Africans can give, we just did not know how to ask them. I think that is what I can conclude. Uh, so for me, I think for the longest time, we have assumed and assumed wrongly and unfairly that Africans are not philanthropic. And this is because, hand on heart, we have not really as a sector internationally gone out there to find out how Africans give, how they would want to give, in which ways they give, so that we begin to also broaden the definition of philanthropy because the way you know a buddhist gives will probably be very different from the way uh, an african in senegal gives because they have had to, two different you know you know i mean a buddhist from 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 you know nepal so they've had two different experiences so it is now we're beginning to tease that out and it is really really exciting
0: And it's surprising to me that as a sector, like you said, that we haven't really invested in this space before, because Africa is such a huge market. And I've always known um, that that could be potentially an avenue where you could get major philanthropic gifts. And it's, you know, as you've mentioned, that our sector hasn't really invested in this. So why do you think that's the case?
1: Because we already have had big markets here. If you look at the You know, there's a big market in the UK, in Europe, in Asia, in America. There is more wealth in this part of the world. So I guess as fundraisers, we already had a lot to fundraise from that is closer to us here. Uh, Secondly, we are increasingly seeing loads and loads of wealth that is coming out of Africa. Mm -hmm. And so we are now waking up to the fact that actually such wealthy people can give to causes that they care about so we might as well give them that opportunity. Um, but also thirdly, we have not, I, I'm saying this again, we have not bothered to find out how Africans give and what moves them to give. I think for me, having grown up in Africa, I, for me, I kind of in a way took for granted that I knew how they give because that's how i was brought up giving and so i i was lucky enough that i just happened to be in the right organization at the right time that was going down that road that two and two just came together but it's 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 really exciting times yeah
0: yeah no absolutely keith and i certainly agree with you um because my mother is born in kenya um in mombasa and Mm. so I've been back to Mombasa, and Nairobi many times before. I've got to know the Kenyan culture and it is a very giving culture. And that's why it surprises me that um, more work hasn't been done, but hopefully through the work that you've done, uh, Save the Children UK, that more fundraisers in this space can really show the impact that African philanthropists can have not only in their countries, but across the continent of Africa and even internationally, which is fantastic to see.
1: I was speaking to a lady who is based in Washington DC, and she is trying to set up an Africa philanthropy program for another organization that is American based. And this is what she said to me. She told me that the reason why this organization and and herself want to go to raise money from African philanthropists is because they need to help the philanthropists professionalise their giving. Now, I had to correct her because if people give differently, that doesn't mean it's not professional. And also because we do not know, or some of us may not know what and how some Africans give, that doesn't mean it's not professional. So I'm just hoping that as this market grows, as it gets more exciting, as we continue to find ways in which we globally can work with African philanthropists, let us be willing to learn, to be willing to Explore how giving is done and why it is done. That statement really, for me, shocked me because these are cultures that have given for centuries. For centuries, um, in 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 my tribe and in in my clan, there's there's, there's 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 a statement that says, for the good of the country or for the good of the village. So, if we go there and say we are now professionalizing that, we will be absolutely missing the point, don't you
0: think? I could not agree with you more, Keith. Absolutely hit the nail on the head that we need to adapt and be flexible in our approach and work in partnership with whoever we are interacting with and leverage gifts for transformational change. We can't just have a one size fits all policy at all. And I think our sector is starting to learn that a lot more, um, particularly when we talk about, you know, equality, diversity and inclusion in our workforces. I think that is has its part to play as well, because when you have a more diverse and inclusive workforce and you entertain ideas and suggestions from a wide variety of backgrounds, these type of comments that you heard are less likely to come through because you have right. a more cultured, and a more varied workforce. And in your role as Head of Africa Philanthropy at say the Children UK, I understand that you started the philanthropy programme from scratch. Can you establish the way in which you started that philanthropy programme and any tips you can provide fundraisers that are in a similar situation?
1: It's a tricky one. Why is because when I look back, it was a moment in time when it was easier to travel and how I did it really is that because I was lucky enough to be in a charity that actually has a lot of programs on the continent I visited the programs and also while I was visiting the programs I also visited the people that were could support those programs in those countries. So there was already a match. Then, like any other fundraiser, I, it wasn't really, you know, magic. It was I didn't reinvent the wheel. Like any other fundraiser, I then went to our leaders, our board members, our teams. I remember being in our Kenyan office where I sat down with the entire staff team and I, I told them, who do you know? And I came with 50 names of wealthy people. And then I started telling them, Who do you know who can, you know, help us to open those doors? And so I really had to do the legwork, but I did not do that legwork from London. I had to go and do it on the ground. I was lucky that I also had contacts already on the continent. So I had somewhere to start. But that doesn't, you know, make or break anything as a fundraiser, you can always find somewhere to start. So for me, it was literally getting out of the comfort of the office and going where the work is and trying to bring the donors close to the work. But the at the same time, while asking as many people as possible to make introductions. And with time, one introduction became two, two became four, four became 16, 16 became 80. So it's 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 it's, it's really, it was starting from nothing, literally zero.
0: The so something that came across there for me is about trust. So very early on in developing a philanthropy programme, you are not only building trust with your colleagues in Kenya, in the regional offices, but also with the potential donors that you'll be working with and showing them this is the impact that can be made, is that correct?
1: Absolutely, trust, but also taking people on a journey. I had to, for some of these country offices, they had never really fundraised before. They had traditionally really re- depended on grants from the EU, from DFID, from USAID that they would receive. This was a very, very different way of actually fundraising, and we had to go on that journey together. Because I would describe it, and sometimes they wouldn't get it. I wouldn't get it. Trial and error. You know, those few fast months were. Re- sorry were really really painful because it was like mm, i don't know is 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 there you know is, is there are any money in this country and i'm like yes there is we just but we don't know any rich people and they're like ah you will know them so you know it just got to that point whereby you know when november last year i had an event and it was hosted by the vice president of nigeria the next month, I had an event that was hosted by the First Lady of of, of 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 Kenya, but that was two two years in the making. So it's just you have to relentless work at it.
0: Absolutely, and as fundraisers, we all know that the importance of resilience. That you are going to get you know a lot of no's, but you have to keep keep on banging the door until you get the yes because. When you do get the yes, it might be that you're entertaining the First lady of Kenya or the <laughs> vice President of another country, so it does it does pay off in the end
1: yes yes definitely
0: and I think you're being incredibly humble, Keith, with your <laughs> i I have read that in the last twenty four months that you have bought in 12 million pounds is that correct well
1: soon to be i think 17
0: Uh, but yes (laughs) you are being extremely humble can you talk us through that process in leveraging so many significant high value gifts and how you go about not only obtaining them because that's the start of the journey as you mentioned but making Mm. sure that you steward them correctly what is that process like
1: The process is really all about connections. Mm -hmm. All the people that I raised money from, I would never have met them anywhere. I had read about them in papers, I had read about them in Forbes magazine, but I had never met them. I had even never thought I'd ever meet them. But it is really exciting people around you about the vision. And these people could literally be your board members. And that is where I started. And these board members haven't known someone who knows someone who knows someone, who made an introduction. And when this person came in, we then started that very long, slow journey of this is what we're doing, it's something different. Do you want to involve us? Do you want to be involved? I brought in the highest level of of, of the, the CEO of Save the Children was absolutely involved because I knew that these kinds of people would not meet anyone less. The chairman of the board was involved, and it even got to the level whereby, at towards the end of towards the gift being made, I also had the opportunity of introducing this person to our patron, who happened to be. Princess Anne. So it is, you know, using all that was available to me, traveling, making sure that they feel special, making sure that they appreciate the work, making sure that I listen to see what they're interested in. So by the time these gifts came in, it had been a whole lot of work put together, consistent cultivation, being creative, Exciting the donor, listening to them, responding to their needs, making sure that for that amount of money, you have to be able to respond to what they want. Not what the organization wants, what they want, as long as it fits within the vision of the organization. Post the gift, You know the reporting, the recognition, the invitation to other things to do, the interaction with them and the beneficiaries so it has continued to be a journey that you know the gift was just the beginning so you know that is really how i did it
0: yeah i really like those two points keith firstly the point that you made about making the major donor or philanthropist understand the vision of the organization and buy into that vision because once they buy into that vision and they Wholeheartedly believe in where the organization is going, it's more likely that you're going to receive funding than not. Mm. And your second point is around making sure that the key stakeholders are engaged from the organization and making sure that you do everything in the best interest of the organization, but also the major donor or philanthropist, and understanding that you need to know the philanthropist on. A really good level where you can engage with them honestly and openly. Now, shall we turn to the impact of COVID nineteen? It seems that like you can't have a conversation in fundraising or philanthropy at the moment without uttering COVID nineteen. What have been some of the challenges you've seen in the international slash African philanthropy market that COVID nineteen has presented you with?
1: It became really unpredictable for donors. Mm-hmm. Um, it still is unpredictable. Initially there was this rush to make donations. And they did make the donations. And we were responding, I can speak for Save the Children, we are responding to, you know, PPE, the immediate impact. How do we stop the spread? How do we, you know, make sure that it it, it, it you know, more people are not dying from that then we're in this situation whereby just when we thought things were beginning to thaw things were beginning now we're going into the second phase but at this point many donors have seen their wealth diminish those who haven't seen it diminish they're still you know it's not as easy as it was in 2019 to get a gift because there's a lot of uncertainty um and you know Those who gave, they gave big, and probably they gave what they had to give for 2020. So there are many conversations we're having now with donors who are like, I did my giving already, I cannot give any more this year. So we're beginning to have conversations about 2021, but then we're also having those conversations when they are still very jittery about what will the year look like. Will my business be okay? Will my family be okay? Will I be able to travel? Will I be stuck somewhere? Do I need to save up for a rainy day? There's so many things that are going on. And also, I wouldn't want to underestimate the power of physical interaction. The events, the visits, the program uh, visits as well, the meetings, they all are fuel that excites, reignites the relationship the donor has with their organisation. All those have not been happening in as amazing as Zoom is. It's not the same thing as, you know, inviting a donor to an event and they having this lovely, lovely time. So it's, it's all that that has made it slightly difficult to have as much success and we are going to have to tighten our belts. We're going to be more creative. We're going to have to work harder. And also we're in a situation whereby now it's less about the virus. It's now about the impact of the lockdown. More children out of school, you know, malnutrition is on the rise, poverty is on the rise, gender-based domestic abuse is on the rise so so you're seeing all these things that are now playing and increasing the need for support so it's it's all that added together that is just making you know the impact of covid really really unpleasant
0: Yeah, I think I completely agree with you, Keith, particularly around your initial point where funders at the very early stages of the outbreak and lockdown, they were giving quite significantly and at a more rapid pace than they usually would. Yeah. And now we're entering into the second phase, so to speak, and I know it differs country to country, but now as we, we seem to be entering a second lockdown phase, We almost have to look at the longer term impacts and having that conversation with donors and saying the quote unquote emergency cycle has passed. But now how are we going to tackle the longer term consequences of it? That's a very challenging conversation to have, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's where we are.
0: unfortunately no one has a crystal ball to let us know what's going to happen in the next six to 12 months where we as fundraisers can can plan our approach
1: yeah i know it's it's really it's really a hard time and and i know that there, there are very many listeners out there who know you know fundraisers who've lost their jobs teams that have been slashed in half uh organizations that are really really struggling to stay open so it's just yeah, yeah, I just wanted to say that it's, it's not an easy time at all, regardless of the size of the charity. They are, we, we are going through a, a tough time.
0: And while we know that it has been a challenging time, as you rightly say, Keith, mm. there have been some really important opportunities as a result of COVID-19 as well. And I think as fundraisers and as a sector, we shouldn't lose sight of that either. Yeah. And it's really important that we, take time to acknowledge the challenges and the ways we need to overcome it, but also look at the opportunities that lie in front of us in the way we communicate with major donors and philanthropists moving forward. One area which I've been encouraged by is obviously, like you've already mentioned, Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all of those digital platforms. While they don't necessarily replace face-to-face fundraising, it's more likely that you can have two or three or four major donor calls in a day, whereas before you could only have one or two maximum. So that that's where I can see a particular advantage of kind of the impact of COVID-19. Did you want to touch on that or any other opportunities that you've seen COVID-19 present us with?
1: Absolutely, you can, you can speak to, you know, a donor in, in, in Dubai and one in New York and one in, in Cape Town all on the same day and it would literally, you know, cost you nothing apart from you know your your sky bill. and that is great it it has you know bridged time and distance and so much stuff that you can do. So on one hand, although you may not have that you know contact and that feel of physicality, you also are reaching more donors at the same time. Um, and 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 those ones that haven't had time to see you. It's also much much it's much harder for them to say, oh, I am busy, I'm flying somewhere because you know they're going nowhere. So we have cracked the technology. We have found out different and interesting ways of utilizing technology to actually come up with some really really great ways of of, of cultivating donors. I am beginning to see some really creative platforms that take donors in rooms they take them out they share documents they do that they, they they do videos and all that that kind of tell a story and also the roi is great because they're cheaper and you can you know replicate them uh webinars uh although the shine may be moving off a bit but webinars still are very vital i i i recall us at save the children having been aware by we had someone who was in, you know, in one of the most difficult places to reach in Somalia, speaking to our donors around the world about humanitarian response. That is absolutely difficult to come to bring together. Um, we had, uh, you know, a group of women coming together from all parts of the world that are coming to, to, to join the, the, the Save the Children Women's Network. So it's, it's, that is what is, has, has been possible um also donors have there's some donors that have decided to give and to give big and to give smarter because they've had time to stop and ask questions of themselves and then make those donations so we it's not all doom 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 there are certain ways in which donors are now giving and they're giving smarter so it's 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 a, it's a win-win it's I wouldn't say win win, but there are some really green shoots of hope of working differently that are beginning to emerge out of this.
0: Something that I've noticed working in major donor fundraising is pre COVID 19, it was a lot harder to gain access to major donors. Whereas now, major donors or philanthropists are coming to the organization and saying, How can I give? What can I do to help? And I think it's up to organizations to understand that they have a position of responsibility and to gain trust with that philanthropist because if they do build trust they're more likely to stick with that the major donor that is is more likely to stick with that one organization for perhaps one two or three years which will be more sustainable for the organization too
1: absolutely and you're right but also i do not want to forget us to look internally that Major donor fundraisers also. I, I I hope we can also use this as an opportunity, of keeping talent within the sector, um, and you know can we explore, you know, flexible working in terms of location? Can we ex- explore job sharing? Can we explore different ways in which we can support our cl- colleagues to stay in the sector, even with difficulty, but to ensure that we are also looking out for their welfare and, and, and their livelihood. So it's, it's, in as much as we're looking at donors, we also hope that this can give us the opportunity to look at how we can help our colleagues to be better fundraisers by looking after them.
0: That's an excellent point, Keith. And certainly one that should not be underestimated. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's the fact mm. that we can actually work from home and do our jobs pretty well and still bring in the millions of pounds as you have done. <laughs> so I think you're absolutely right. We need to, as a sector, be much more flexible in not only retaining the talent at the moment that we have in the sector, which is very important, but also attracting it from the corporate sector too. Because there's a lot of skills that this sector needs, and if those and those skills can be found in the corporate sector as well. So on job applications, somebody doesn't necessarily need a fundraising background to be no. a head of or a director. What they do need is transferable skills in terms of building relationships, you know, leading a team. Those sort of skills, of course, come with the nature of the job. But something yeah. that we should also be looking at is with the corporate sector, or any other sector, any other a segment of society attracting good talent.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And Keith, this is a bit of a difficult question as we've already discussed, but what do you think are the long-term changes that COVID-19 will face us with? And what impact do you think that will have on organisations and philanthropists?
1: Yes. The long-term impact of of, of 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 COVID on fundraising will be that technology will be a major major player in how we fundraise. Our donors are going to ask more for their back. I think the ask, the, the the request of Demonstrating impact, um, you know, and and also things like, you know, how much of the of the money that they give stays in the organization to help run the organization. That question is even going to get harder for us as fundraisers because if 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 we can do this in our homes actually telling a donor that actually you need we need you know to be traveling and this may be a bit harder to justify um it's going to get a lot more international what what COVID has shown us is that with technology again you can have a donor from any part of the world and you can reach them and you may have donors that are giving you millions of pounds that you've actually never met uh, covid is also really changing the structure of our teams so Us- Usman the question that we're even going to start asking ourselves do you have to be in the uk to fundraise for a uk charity yeah. which is a totally different kettle of fish because it also comes in with you know you know lo- the legal and tax implications and all that but I know organisations that are already asking themselves that. That is an impact that we, that is, you know, the gene is out of the, 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 the bottle, we, we can't put that back. So, so it's kind of something that we have to consider. So those are some of, 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 of the things that we have to ask. Um, you know, our bosses and, and charity chiefs are going to ask yet again, how many are a good number of fundraisers to have to bring in a certain amount of money. So we're also going to be asked harder questions about ROI. So those are some of the things that I can come up with right now, but it's going to look really different. Um, One area that will, I think, be shaken more than others is the event space, especially the big events that, Major donors have been invited to the galas, the 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 spectacular events, all those. Which personally I feel that these do have a place, but more and more charities will be like, do we actually need to have as many? So those are some of the thoughts that I have.
0: Lots of food for thought there. Thank you, Keith, and a lot of those points I hadn't thought of before so I think it would be really (laughs) good that our listeners um, pay attention to that as well and lastly Keith one topic which I think is of utmost importance and a topic that I am really passionate about is genuine diversity and inclusion in our sector yeah the last year or so has been one of unprecedented change of COVID-19 of course but with the Black Lives Matter movement and organisations within the sector like Charities So White have put a mirror up to the sector and it doesn't make for good reading unfortunately in many aspects. So I wanted to ask you how important is it to have a truly diverse and inclusive workforce and how do we go about achieving this and I know it's a massive topic which you know, we can discuss at a later time, but just a few nuggets of information would be really good.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a podcast all in itself. Um, we are not doing well at all. Not doing well at all. And I'm not pointing a finger to blame anyone. But even when you look at an event, like the awards event of the IOF, if you look around, we are not diverse at all. There are a few key members of, of, of BME who seek out, but by large, we are not divert, diverse whatsoever. Um, and the higher you go in terms of, you know, senior managers, heads of directors, executive directors, the fewer people of color that are there so we need to really look at how we are recruiting how we are you know retaining how we are encouraging what is the what is the biggest inlet into the major donor fundraising because we should also not forget that the makeup of community fundraisers in terms of diversity is very different from the makeup of major donor fundraisers. Yes. Very, very different. And what are they doing there that we're not doing here? I'm not, I'm not saying that they're doing well, but from what I can see, they're doing better. So what is the natural progression of a major donor fundraiser, and why is there less diversity? I became a major donor fundraiser by accident because I happened to go to an organisation in the UK that hired me as a trusts and fundraising, a trust and foundations manager. Then the trust and fundraising program just didn't take off. They didn't want to get rid of me, so they just made me a major donor fundraiser. Just like that, and I, I I just started doing that, and then I realized that actually I'm a better major donor fundraiser than sitting down and writing, you know, bids. So it's 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 it's. But for me, it was an accident. I never ever would have even thought to come into this sector. So it's 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 just to reflect and to look, and as a movement to actually go out, and encourage. BME people to join this sector. And also to that myth that for you to be a major donor fundraiser, you have to have this long list of contacts. And for some people, black and 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 and, and, um, and, and other ethnic minorities, there is this impression that they may not have this long list of, of Goldman Sachs you know presidents to bring to a charity or may, they may not be that well connected so what is the point of asking for that job anyway or still being in an organization that at the interview panel they ask you who are the rich people you know which should not even be a question that you ask a major donor fundraiser because that's not why they hire us um but it is those myths that need to be busted, that then allow people who are, I mean, I'm, I was never connected. I just happened to ask people who are connected to introduce me. That was just what I knew how to do. So it's, 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 it's all that that needs to be looked at by the sector to encourage us to be more diverse. Because if we do not, we will continue to raise money from a smaller pool. Of donors and we will miss out on a whole lot of donors who for them would want to see more diversity in the people that are approaching them for donations
0: yeah, very well said Keith I agree with everything that you've said 100% and we know what structural racism is and i think that we need to tackle that head on and understand the meaning of structural racism Mm -hmm. and the way that manifests our sector and i know a lot of organizations are doing fantastic work out there to shine a light on these issues provide solutions and now is the time that we can't let slip we have to really invest in it and i totally appreciate that organizations across our sector Every single organisation is going through a difficult time with redundancies and layoffs and and all sorts. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I work in the sector myself. However, what we can't do is leave EDI at the bottom of the agenda once again and leave it for another day and kick the football down the road and say, we'll get to that in a year or two once everything's settled. It needs to be part of the solution. And we, we have to shout about it and make sure that senior leadership of our respective organisations are listening. Yes, (laughs) well said. (laughs) Brilliant, thank you so much Keith for sharing your experiences, insights and expertise with me today. I really enjoyed talking to you and thank you so much. And I'm sure we can do this um, again in the future.
1: Thank you so, so much for having me Usman and I would be delighted to come anytime you ask.
0: Brilliant, thank you Keith. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to Keith today and to gain his insights and experiences of our fundraisers and organisations can navigate the challenges presented by COVID-19, but also look ahead and learn of new ways to engage and develop meaningful relationships with philanthropists. It was remarkable to hear that in such a short space of time, Keith has brought in significant funding from philanthropists focusing on networking, building trust and sharing the organisation's vision which philanthropists could buy into. Keith also spoke eloquently about what organisations can do to be more diverse and inclusive, including ensuring working practices are flexible and busting myths of who can be a quote-unquote successful philanthropy fundraiser. Thank you for listening. And that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, charity people, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across the third sector, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aximit for our website design. You can check it out at www.charitychat.org.uk, and Forest of Alls who have been playing throughout. I'm not playing us out now.